listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message by Pastor Andy Squires. Well, in the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul makes this statement about preaching. And he says this thing, he says, uh, he says, preaching is foolishness. He's like, even more than preaching being foolishness, the thing that we're preaching is foolish. It's foolishness. So, so the thing that I'm doing, which is preaching, this is downright foolish. But what you're doing is even more foolish because you're listening to a fool doing something foolish. So we are in this communal activity of practicing and reveling in the foolishness of the preaching of the gospel that is the power to transform and change the world. Amen. So the, the foolishness of God, as foolishness as this feels, as meaninglessness, as meaningless as this sometimes feels, there's a grace attached to it in which we receive something that you cannot get any other way. If you take yourself out of listening to the preaching of the gospel, you're missing a point of grace that you need in your life on a continual basis. I've said it over and over quite a few times, but we, this is the practice of us submitting ourselves under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So this morning, we're going to continue in the gospel of John. The last couple times I've spoken, I've been in, in John chapter 6. But this morning... We're going to be in John chapter 2, so if you have your Bible or your iPhone, go ahead and get it ready. John chapter 2, we're going to be looking at a famous story, otherwise known as the wedding at Cana, right? So before we read or get to the text, I want to draw your attention to John's timeline. I've mentioned this before, but the Apostle John, he has a unique but important timeline through the Gospel of John. The gospel of John is divided into two different halves. The first half is seven signs that point to the deity of this man, Jesus Christ. Um, in theology, there's a term used to describe Jesus. It's, it's orthodox tradition would say that if you were to describe Jesus, you could say that he's fully God and fully man. He's both of those things at the same time. It's a mystery. But could you say that Jesus was God? Absolutely. Could you also say that Jesus was man? Absolutely. Those two things are happening at the same time. But John's writing his gospel because he wants you to understand that Jesus showing up on the scene is important because he is who he claims to be. And there are seven signs that John specifically and strategically gives us on purpose. All right. So it's interesting in the text, beginning in chapter two of, of John, we see this first phrase and it goes like this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana. All right. If you're like me, you've read that a few times, but you've totally bypassed the phrase on the third day. Have you ever asked yourself the question on the third day of what since when 
I mean, it's interesting how much we read in the scriptures that completely goes past us, right? It's, it's we're scattered minds. We're, we're busy. We got things to do, places to go, people to see. You know, this is why we stop and we kind of dig in because the things that we find in the scripture are not arbitrary. They are there and they are pregnant and they are overflowing with prophetic purpose. Okay, when the gospel of John in chapter two begins with on the third day, that is not John trying to fill empty space. He's trying to get you to a place where the miracle, the sign that he's about to tell you about is very important. All right. So on the third day, so we should ask ourselves on the third day from when? All right. There's a method to John's madness. Nothing that he writes in this gospel is arbitrary. He is testifying that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the only begotten son of God. And he starts his gospel in chapter one by saying this in the beginning. What other book do you know that begins with in the beginning? Genesis. So John begins the same way. He's saying in the beginning was the word and the word came as flesh. He's trying to establish to the listener, to the reader, who Jesus is. So he does this in John chapter 1. He says, Jesus is the word made flesh. And after he establishes that Jesus is the word made flesh, he's setting us up to see and hear that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that God's coming kingdom was now about to begin. All right. So the gospel of John starts like this. Chapter one, the word made flesh into more of chapter one. John the Baptist shows up and he's not the Messiah, but he is the voice that's crying out. Behold, make way. There's one coming. I am not him, but there is one coming. And then the narrative of John starts like this. The next day, so there was John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness. The next day, we'll call that day one. The next day, John saw Jesus coming and he said, behold, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And then jumping up to verse 35 in chapter one, it says this again, the next day. So on the first day, John the Baptist is proclaiming, behold, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And then on the next day, John the Baptist sees him again. He says, behold, the lamb of God. So the gospel of John has set the stage for the inauguration of Jesus. The word made flesh the next day. Behold, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world again. The next day, behold, the lamb of God. And then on the third day, there was a wedding. So let's read the text together. John chapter two, starting in verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner, manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. 
And Jesus says to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that he, that was made to wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. Thus, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So I want to suggest this to you this morning in scripture as bread is so is wine. Wine is a prophetic symbol. Wine is an icon. Wine represents something more than something to drink. When you see wine in scripture, you should pay close attention because it means something. It's more than a drink. Wine is a sign. Say that wine is a sign. Let's do it together. Wine is a sign. All right. Wine is a sign that points to what God is really like and what God really wants to do. So if you recall that sermon that I preached on bread, we learned that bread is what Jesus held up to us to look at in order to understand and remember who he is. Amen. Anybody remember that? Okay, you're with me. If you want to know what God looks like or what he is like, we look at what? Bread. God did not ask you to remember him by holding up a sword. He did not ask you to remember him by holding up a spear. He held up bread. But before he held up the bread, he made wine. Before he held up the bread, he made wine. Wine making was the very first thing that Jesus did. In the gospel of John, there are seven signs strategically placed in order that we, that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah sent by God to inaugurate the kingdom of God. In the gospel of John, it is no accident that the first sign that John tells us about is at a feast where he's making wine at a wedding banquet. The very first thing that John tells us about is at a wedding, at a feast, where Jesus is turning water into wine. So I guarantee you, you've read this story before and you've said, wow, that's really neat. Wow, a miracle. They had no wine and then they did. Wow, Jesus, you're amazing. You can turn water into wine. Thank you, Jesus. Yay, God. Yay, you. But the wine. So although the people at the wedding were provided for, this is not a miracle of provision. 
The wine is a sign. What's happening in this story is way more than some people who were without, who all of a sudden had what they needed. It's not about that, although that's included. What's happening here is something much better, much greater than that. The apostle John, he's trying to whet our appetites to be able to receive this kingdom that is upon us. So there's this prophetic utterance that happens out of the mouth of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah in the book of Isaiah in chapter 25 of Isaiah. So previous to this moment in the 25th chapter of Isaiah, there's all of this apocalyptic imagery happening. The prophet is kind of like proclaiming doom over the nations. He's proclaiming this imminent judgment that will come upon the world and the nations of the earth. And it's not good news. The seriousness of the complaints that are being lodged against the nations would most likely or should have likely led them to despair, if not national repentance. You know, sometimes there's this hard word that gets brought into our lives and and that's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. Sometimes we are needing to be confronted by a hard word, aren't we? We're needing to make adjustments. We're needing to change the thing that we did or the thing that we're doing. We need to stop doing. And sometimes God confronts us and he brings a corrective word. But what was happening in the book of Isaiah, it was like, it was past the corrective word, man. It was like, guys, the fire of God is about to fall on you, and I am not talking about revival. There was serious judgment on its way to the nations of the world because of the crimes that they were committing, because of the brokenness that was culturally expressed in their cities. Really bad things were happening, and people were lost, and the judgment of God was coming for them. But something happens in the text in chapter 25, there's a massive shift of the spirit and all of the apocalyptic, prophetic, poetic language that the, the prophet is using in chapters 22 and 23 and 24 comes to a grinding halt. And out of nowhere, God begins to speak a redemptive word that has literally nothing to do with people changing their behavior. The wind of the spirit shifts and contrasted against all the seriousness of the case against the nations. Grace and mercy for all becomes the clarion call of the prophet. And we see God's main thrust is not to revel in the brokenness of a fallen world, but to bring us into wholeness. He begins to reveal God's ultimate aim is not the destruction of the world, but it's the salvation of the world. And the most compelling thing about the passage we are about to read is that Isaiah connects the ultimate work of salvation for the world to the appearance 
of wine. Oh, man. (laughs) Why? Because wine is the sign. Amen. If you've got your Bible, open it up to Isaiah 25, starting at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of all his people. He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Oh man, that is so good. I hope you can grab a hold of that this morning. I hope you can feel that. I hope this this is not just words on a page for you this morning, but I, I hope you can feel what the heart of the Lord is for us this morning. And not just us, but for the world that we inhabit. Amen? And he's connecting this message of the goodness of God to the sign of wine that's coming. He says, man, on this day... When I'm going to kill death once and for all, I'm going to do it while I'm serving wine. Wine is the sign. The Lord is serving the best feast with the best wine. And he is swallowing up on this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the earth. Other translations say this. That he will remove the veil of grief. That he will remove the cloud of sorrow. That he will remove the shroud that enfolds all people. He will remove the cloud of gloom and the shadow of death. He will remove the burial shroud. This is the Old Testament telling us what God is like and what he means. You know, guys, here's the truth about the Old Testament. There's some hard passages in it, but it's good news. People talk smack about the Old Testament all the time, but the heart of the Lord is revealed in the text. The Old Testament was the only scripture that the church had in the early days. When they would go to church and read the Bible, guess what they would do? They would read the book of Isaiah and they would see Jesus in the text. So he is going to kill the curse of sin and death, and he is going to bring salvation to the world by inaugurating his kingdom. And when he does this, wine will be served as a sign. John could have started his gospel with any story, but John knew that wine was the sign. John knew that you can't have a party unless you have wine. John knew this party was not getting started unless all the wine had been drunk and then six 30-gallon tanks of water had been turned into wine so that the party could continue. But it wasn't just for that night. This party was just getting started in perpetuity from now until the return of Jesus and into all eternity. 
And it's all about wine. And it's all about having a good time. And it's all about you and I coming into an inebriation where we're losing all of the things that hold us back from knowing the reality of Christ and bringing us into the fullness of knowing him. Jesus didn't save your sorry, sweaty, hairy carcass so that he could just grin, grin his teeth and, and bear and put up with you. He loves you. He enjoys you. He wants to feast with you. He's setting a table for us. Not just because he's putting up with us, church. There's goodness in store for you and me. And we're not waiting until we die in order to lay hold of it. This story is so pregnant with meaning that it's just bursting. And there's much more that we can glean from this passage in John 2 than what I'll be able to say today. But I just want to draw your attention to a few things. I love this tension we see between Jesus and his mother. You could conclude that Jesus was irritated with Mary, but I don't really see that. To me, this conversation is intimate banter. All right. Sometimes my wife says something to me and I say, uh, woman, what concern of that is mine? I never get very far with that. But typically, whatever she says to do, I do. Okay, you might be on the outside and you might hear Amy say something to me. And I say, woman, what concern of that is for me? And you might think to yourself, oh, they're they're in a bad spot. But that is just the banter between two intimate people. Amen. Jesus is not put out with Mary and Mary knows something's up. They're just having a meeting of hearts right now. They're having a meeting of minds. Something that wasn't is about to be. And when you go through some transition, sometimes you have to say, woman, what concern of that is mine? And Mary, she's undaunted. She doesn't even care that he talked like that to her. She just turns to the servants and says, whatever he says, do it. That's what I say to myself. Whenever Amy says something, I said, whatever she says, do it. That's just the way we are. That's how we operate. If you're a wise man, that's how you will be with your wife. But this is what's going on between this mother and son right here. So there's this pregnant prophetic purpose and meaning in this passage. It's like Jesus doesn't even know he is about to start his public ministry. But Mary does. She's a bit of a prophet herself. She's got all these expectations that she's been hiding in her heart for years since the angel spoke to her. She knew something was going on with her son. I bet you she was calling this out of him for years. He probably had been hearing this from her for his whole life. It's as if her faith and hope Activate Jesus into his calling and purpose. She gave birth to him in the natural. And here in a way she is releasing him into his calling and vocation. When he says woman, he is not being condescending. Although you could take it that way. He feels her pressing into him. He feels her making a claim on him. And in his humanity, he reacts like any son would. But here's what I see in Mary. I see the church. 
I see you and me in Mary. You might could say Mary is symbolic of us. Jesus is at the party. We've run out of wine. And we're just letting him know. Do you ever feel like you're not drunk enough? Do you ever feel like you don't have enough wine in your life? Do you ever feel like you're so worried and anxious and busy and non-peaceful and confused that the only conclusion you can come to in your life is that, Jesus, I'm out of wine. Man, this is such a moment for us, church. Jesus is at the party. We're out of wine. What's the example set for us? It's to go and say, hey, man, guess what? You need to do something here. Because if you don't, this party ain't happening. If you don't move, Lord, this party ain't going on. We're turning off these lights and we're going home. Lord, if you don't show up, we're closing the doors and we're going somewhere else. We're going to the movies. I don't know what we're doing. We're watching Stranger Things season three all day on Netflix. Imagine, I mean, I love Netflix. I watch The Office every night before my bed, bedtime. That's my daily devotions, you know? I mean, I'll be real with you, you know? But what if I came to the end of my life and all that I had to show for my walk with the Lord was how good my life on Netflix was, man? I can't live like that. I don't want my life to be that. When I am so leaning heavy on the things of this world and I know I need that thing from the Lord, I don't have any wine in the cupboard. I'm going over to him and I'm saying, Lord Jesus, I'm out of wine. Hopefully y'all feel this today. I kind of feel this today. Anybody feel this today? Don't be shy. You don't have to be shy. Man. Oh, man, I got to tell you this story. <laughs> this is crazy. So my son, we bought my son, Henry, a $100 metal detector last year for Christmas. And it, the $100 version is good, but it's not that good. So he's been out and he's been treasure hunting and he's found some things here and there. And, and, but it was enough to whet his appetite. Thursday evening, uh, Amy and... Myself and Henry and Elliot, our two youngest kids, we call them the littles because we have so many kids. We have three batches of kids, our two oldest, our middle two, and then our bottom two are the littles, you know. <laughs> so we got the olders, the middles, and the littles. So the, the littles are the only ones left at home. Everybody else is gone doing their own thing. So, we're, you know, pray for us because our life's about to be lonely. But <clears throat> anyways, after dinner, we, we eat spaghetti and then we go over to Mountain Island Lake, which is only about 10 minutes from our house. And the lake is real low right now. So there's all these sandbars everywhere. And I was going to go fishing and Henry grabbed his, his new metal detector. He saved up 400 bucks and he bought this like pro level metal detector. And so he's been so stoked and you know, it's every day, dad, can we go metal detecting every day without fail, you know, and you feel bad because like 90% of the time you say no, but you know, you get the points when you say yes. So anyways, we go down there. He starts metal detecting. He's on the sand bake. And me and Amy are over there casting our lines. We're fishing. And then all of a sudden, Henry comes over. He taps me on the shoulder. And he's got this look on his face like he is about to explode. And he says, Dad, this is why we do this. <laughs> and I said, what? 
I said, what? And he holds up a coin. And on the coin, it says, Confederate States of America, 1861. I kid you not. We have video. Henry and I are running around the sandbar screaming at the tops of our lungs. I mean, I'm not kidding. I, I, I'll just make a total fool of myself if I showed you what we were doing. But it was incredible. I mean, I, it was like we just won the lottery. We just Somebody told us we won a million dollars in the state lottery. I mean, we were running around. Amy's got her iPhone out, and she's like, this is going to be my proof. You know, we're just screaming. We're sweating. We're like... We cannot believe this happened, you know, because he's gotten some wheat pennies and he's gotten some things. But, but a coin from 1860 is what you want. Man. So we spent about 10, 10, 10 minutes looking at this coin. And, and, oh, you should have seen our faces. We were stricken. We were forlorn. We were eat, about to eat the bread of affliction and we didn't even know it. Because right on the back side of that coin, there was this tiny little stamp right in the middle of the coin that said, copy. <laughs> oh man, we put Henry to bed that night about 11 o'clock and he was still under a cloud of depression, man. I was having to read Isaiah 25 to him, you know, like the Lord's going to swallow up death in your life, Henry. He's going to deal with this for you, man. But I bring that up to tell you the inebriation that we felt in that moment is a feeling that I live for. I mean, God darn, like that feeling right there is what I live for, man. Like you have to do all the things that you have to do in your life, right? You have to get up in the morning. You have to go to work. You have to make a living. You have to do all these things. But that is not what our life is about. Jesus has been beckoning us. And he's saying, listen, don't go after the bread that perishes. I'm serving wine at your party, man. And if you feel like you've run out of wine, I'm making water into wine today for you. This is, this is the main thing that I'm doing. I'm doing this at the beginning. I'm doing this in the middle. And I'm doing this at the very end too. <sighs> Henry's going to find one of those coins one of these days. I just know it. Whew. So this, this past Monday night, I had this thing happen to me. I feel like I've shared enough scripture with you all today that I can share a little bit out of my own life. Amen. Are you with me? Are, are you okay? So, so Monday night, I'm lying in my bed. Amy's already asleep and I'm just lying there. I haven't yet got my phone out yet to watch The Office. I'm just lying there. I don't know if it's lying or laying. I can never, can never tell, but it doesn't matter. You get the idea. I was down. You know, My head was on my pillow. And I had this thing happen to me where the Lord walked into the room. Have you ever, have you ever, has that ever happened to you where you were in an actual physical place and the Lord walked into your room? That's what happened to me on Monday night. And the Lord started speaking to me in the most incredible way. And, and, and it was so 
it was so amazing because he was speaking to me and I could feel him in a way that I hadn't felt in many years. I, I venture to say maybe close to a decade. I was, I was telling Robin about this experience and I was telling him, I said, I, I think the last time the Lord really came into the room like that was around 2009. Um, but it surprised me. It surprised me because I wasn't laying there asking him to show up. I was just laying there. I hadn't been seeking him, but I felt his glory come into my room. And it was like, it was like wine. It was like a fine wine. I was, it was like a feast where the food is so good. You can't believe what you are tasting. And the wine is so wonderful that you just have to tell everybody about it. And the Lord then began to, he began to communicate to me how I had forgotten about the wine, how I had forgotten about his wine in my life. Have you ever been around somebody who was like on fire for Jesus and they're the most annoying people to be around because you can't relate to anything they're feeling or talking about? That's how I was feeling like in the room when the Lord was speaking to me. And when he started serving me this wine, I started thinking to myself, oh man, I'm about to become annoying to everybody. Like, cause the things that I could feel from the heart of the Lord that were being poured into my chest were so good that like, I couldn't articulate the feelings I was feeling like the goodness that I was feasting on the wine that I was tasting in that moment was like putting strength in my bones. It was giving courage back into my heart where I had lost heart, where there had been a a lack of faith, where there had been a lack of hope, where there had been a lack of belief. The Lord walked into the room and he began feeding me on this wine. And all of a sudden my heart was bursting and I couldn't hold all the goodness that he was given to me. I was like, oh my Lord, this is so good, Lord. Thank you for this. What is this, Lord? And he just began to say some things to me. And he's, he's, this is some of the things he was saying to me. He's like, Andy, your intellect can only take you so far. I mean, lately I had been kind of like confused about some things. There were some issues, some cultural issues, some theological issues, some, some church related issues that I couldn't quite wrap my brain around. And I felt like I was stuck and I felt like I was carrying burdens that I had no answers for. And the Lord began to speak grace to me. And he was saying, Andy, your intellect, as good as it is, and I gave it to you and it's a gift. You should not disdain it. It can only take you so far. And you're trying to get from it things that only I can give you. Thank God for our minds. But if we only knew about the Lord intellectually, then we would be missing so much of what the Bible says belongs to us. But the Lord began to show me again that there is a reality of knowing the Lord that is better than anything we are currently imagining. There is a reality of knowing the Lord that is beyond and better than any of our words that we use to categorize or to understand him or to understand other people and their belief systems. You know, sometimes you feel a lack of connection with 
with people and with God because you have systems of categorizing people that keeps you from knowing who they actually are. And what happens? I, I, this is going to sound crass, but what happens when a person gets drunk? You see the world through beer goggles or wine goggles. You start seeing everybody differently, don't you? You start loving people. All of a sudden you have this permission to be okay with where everybody's at in their process. And you're no longer defining people by what they believe or how they vote or how they dress or even how they act. The wine of the spirit is being poured out on us so that our hearts can be enlarged so we can receive the world into the father's heart. This isn't just about being drunk because it feels good. It's about being and knowing the spirit in a way that creates a largeness in your heart so that you can actually enjoy the people that you are among. I know I'm going long, but I feel this. Are you with me still? I'll wrap it up. I promise. There is a goodness to God that is so good that it puts to shame any of our paradigms that we use to contain our issues and our insecurities. The temptation we struggle with is that we become enamored with the issues of the day as if we could solve them by adding our opinions to the noise. Are you a Baptist? Any Baptists in here? It's okay. You don't have to be ashamed. Any charismatics? Are you, who's a charismatic in here? You got some charismatics in here. Any Democrats in here? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> are you an, are you a Republican? Are you a, are you an intellectual? Are you an activist? Are you an Enneagram four? Are you a social media influencer? Do you relate through the world, through your, your social media influence? Are you asleep? Are you woke? Are you none of these things, but you at least want to be one of these things? You're striving to be something. And all the things that the world is offering you as an identity. It's not feeding the gnawing hunger in your heart. All of these things adding up to Jesus. We have run out of wine. What is the label that you wear? What is the system that you subscribe to? What is the water that your insecurities are swimming in? Whatever you may think you are right now, it pales in comparison to the goodness that God has for you that is available for you right now. Jesus' desire, his heart for you is to turn the water into wine and his goodness is so good that you can't even imagine it. But I want to do this. Speaking of imaginations, I want to do this. 
It's 12.07. I have till 12.10. Three minutes. For the glory to pour out. But in, in John chapter 3, we've, we've said this a few times from this pulpit recently. But Jesus, he's confronting the Pharisees. And he's saying to them, there have been many things that have testified about me to you. And you have missed them all. And he says, you search the scriptures because in them, you think that you have life. But the one who is life is standing right in front of you. And you refuse to come to me so that I might give you rest. And um, I got this bottle, this real nice $2 bottle of Oak Creek Vineyard Merlot. Tanner, did we get this at um, the drugstore? Is this where this comes from? Who knows? This is not a fine bottle of wine. This is what we call swill. (laughs) Nevertheless, nevertheless, I want you to just imagine the belief system that you have in your mind. The judgments that you hold in your mind against God, toward God, toward other people, toward your friends, toward your family. I want you just to imagine all of the roadblocks that are in your life where it feels like you can't get to God for one reason or another. And I I want you to imagine just your current understanding of the scriptures as they are, whatever, whatever place that is. I want you to, to imagine your current belief system of God and Jesus. I've got this Bible. I've had this Bible. This is, this is the, This is called the Spirit Life Bible. This is a Spirit-filled Bible here. Jack Hayford wrote it. I've had this Bible for going on close to 30 years now. This Bible is very precious to me because it represents years and hours and hours and hours, years worth of of study, years worth of, of moments where Jesus gave me a fresh word, where Jesus did something for me to transform my life. I mean, this book in particular, this the Bible I love, but this one in particular, I love even more. It's important to me. You might have something like that. You might have a Bible or a belief system or a thought that's really important to you. It's precious to you that God gave you. But this is what I want us to see today. The wine not only announces the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, but it also announces the new life of the Holy Spirit. And it leads the church into the power of knowing Jesus beyond the written word of the scripture, beyond our belief structures, Beyond the paradigms that we have built for us 
And I know this is going to be weird, and I really hope it doesn't offend some of you who might be offendable. But during worship today, I was just seeing the wine pouring out on the word this morning. Because when I was laying in my bed on Monday night and the Lord began speaking to me, he began serving me his new wine and I began to feel again. I began to see again and I began opening up the scriptures again. And rather than just reading dusty, boring, meaningless words on the page, I began to feel and know my friend again. How many of you guys know Jesus as your savior, but you would like to know him as a closer friend? Don't be shy. Just put your hand up. We're all in this together. Let's just do this. Why don't we, why don't we stand up together? Ooh, Jesus. Is there somebody made? Do you want to pray? You should come up here and pray. Come all the way up here. Sometimes you just get tired of hearing your own voice. I'm tired of hearing mine right now. The thing I like about May Fink is she, every time I get around her, I, uh, <clears throat> I feel like I learn more how to receive the Holy Spirit because she's kind of like, she kind of majors on being a conduit of the Holy Spirit. So what I want us to do, guys, is offer a simple prayer of faith that the wine of the Spirit would be poured out on our lives today. Who wants to pray that prayer with us? Yeah, let's do that together. Oh, Jesus. Oh, your sweet spirit. Come, Jesus. Spirit, come. Spirit, come like wine, new wine. New wine, come. Oh, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask you to fill this room more. Mm, I feel like there's ones here that have felt the Spirit before and you've turned away just because it felt like it was old and that you felt childish. But this is the new wine and it's our portion.
So we say, come Holy Spirit, that you would fill us anew, that we would fill ourselves, that we would feel you again as a friend. Jesus, you have our everything. You meet us at our low. You meet us when we're high. You meet us in the middle. So we say, come Lord Jesus, fill us again. We want you to fill us again. We don't want to be empty. Lord, come and fill Fill us with your spirit. You always come when we ask. If we ask you for bread, would you give us a stone? No. If we ask you for a filling of wine and your new wine, you will come. Mm. Jesus, thank you for your spirit. Mm. Oh, thank you for your spirit, God. Oh, Jesus. Mm. Come, Jesus. Hey, I want to do something different. Now, we, we don't normally do this. Trenton, can I have you come up to the keys? If you, if you want to respond a little bit more to May, May's prayer, rather than going over to the side to our ministry teams, I want to invite you up just to the front. We, we won't pray for you long, but I feel like if you want just a, 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 just a fresh touch, a little bit more, we'll, me and Robin will come in May. We'll just come, just, just line up in the front here, and we'll just pray a little prayer of blessing over you and just release more of the Spirit into your life this week, all right? So what we, want to, we want to go ahead and move into that ministry time, but we also want to make sure that, um, well, it is lunchtime. Some of you guys got lunch plans, so we want to make sure that, you know, you got fed spiritually, now you go get fed the other way, you know? So, but, but listen, seriously, if you want more prayer, just come to the front. I know there's some of you that are really hungry to receive more from the Lord this morning. Don't, don't be shy. Just, just come on up here and some of us will just, yeah, come on. Come on. We're not going to pray long over you. We're just going to just go by and touch you on the forehead. Just pray a, a blessing on you. And um, yeah. Yeah, I, w- I want to make this connection. Paul said, be not drunk with wine where is an excess, but be filled with the spirit. So it's a very clear connection without saying go drink and get drunk that way but it's the release of the life of God in a whole nother level so that's what we're praying father we ask now in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit would come break off mindsets fears anxieties dryness let your spirit come Let your spirit flow. Let no one be afraid of God in that way. Holy Spirit, come. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.